Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly to discuss her new book, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, published by the Norton Imprint, Live Right in 2023. In the United States, the stoicism and importance of the working class is part of the national myth. The term is often used to conjure the contributions and challenges of the white working class, and this obscures the ways in which Black workers built institutions like the railroads and universities, but also how they transformed unions, changed public policy, and established community. In Black folk, Dr. Blair L. M. Kelly restores the Black working class to the center of the American story by integrating the lives of laundresses, Pullman porters, domestic maids, and postal workers. The book is both a personal journey and a history of Black labor in the United States from enslavement to the present day with a focus on a critical era after Southern emancipation to the early 20th century when the first generations of Black working people carved out a world for themselves. Dr. Kelly captures the character of the lives of Black workers, not only as laborers, activists, or members of a class, but as individuals whose daily experiences mattered to themselves, to their communities, and to, quote, the nation at large, even as it denied their importance, close quote. As she weaves together rich oral histories, memoirs, photographs, and secondary sources, Dr. Kelly shows how Black workers of all genders were, quote, intertwined with the future of Black freedom, Black citizenship, and the establishment of civil rights for Black Americans, close quote. She demonstrates how her own family's experiences mirror this wider history of the Black working class, sometimes in ways that she herself did not realize before writing the book. Even as the book confronts violence, poor working conditions, and a government that often legislated to protect the interests of white workers and consumers, Black folk celebrates the ways in which Black people, quote, built and rebuilt 
vital spaces of resistance grounded in the secrets that they knew about themselves, about their community, their dignity, and their survival, close quote. Black folk looks back, but also forward. In examining the labor and challenges of individuals, Dr. Kelly sheds light on reparations and suggests that Amazon packaging processing centers, supermarkets, and nursing homes can be spaces of resistance and labor activism in the 21st century. Dr. Blair Ellum Kelly is the Joel R. Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and incoming director of the Center for the Study of the American South, the first Black woman to serve in that role in the, cent in the center's 30-year history. She is also the author of Right to Ride, Streetcar Boycouts, and African-American Citizenship in the Era of Plessy v. Ferguson from the University of North Carolina Press. And I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Blair, how did you come to be interested in the Black working class and write this particular book? Um, in fact, and, and one thing I'm really interested in is whether your family was always going to be part of the story. So it, this came to me in an interesting way. Um, I was approached by uh, my editor who had been reading, you know, the literature that's come out about the white working class over the past decade, I'd say, and was wondering about the black working class and, um, you know, came to me uh, with it. And initially I'm like, well, I'm not a labor historian. I don't write unions and I don't, you know, this is not the work I do. I've, I've done movement work and things around the African-American experience more generally, but not so much the working class. And um, it's, he said to me, you know, well, how would you write this book? How would you approach this question? And I thought of my family. I thought of my grandfather um, escaping from Georgia as a teenager with his his family his, under the direction of his father, who realized that sharecropping would never be fair. I thought of my grandparents' migration journeys. I thought of my father um, working as a ship fitter at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, and um, I thought of his father and his migration and his journey into Philadelphia in the 1920s. And so I was struck by the degree to which their story mirrored the kinds of things I've been teaching over the years and the, the emphasis I've put on um, the human experience of being Black and working class. And so um, I pitched that as my proposal and it was accepted. And so I just started down that journey. And, and for me, weaving in the family stories is how I teach, it's how I think, it's how my brain works. If if real humans don't fit the theories or the, the grand frameworks that we as scholars create, who are we who are we talking about? So I always go to that human experience and try to capture that, both for my own family and then for the people I'm studying that I, I discovered along the way, who um, I I try to treat as if they were my family. Well, and that is part of the brilliance of this book. I'm not in your class, so I, I haven't had that experience of getting to know you. I didn't know you at all in reading the book. But what comes through from the very first page and really carries you through, this is a page turner. And I, you know, I, I, I read a lot of history books and some of them are have compelling subjects. Some of them are beautifully written. This has both. And it also has a kind of a, a narrative structure that 
makes it a page turner, despite the amount of information. And I think part of that is this naming of names. Like you, mm-hmm. you want us to, you know, know who Callie House is, even if we didn't mm-hmm. know it before we came mm-hmm. into the book. And you want us to know some of your relatives, but you also want us to know people who followed those sort of similar paths and wrote these were incredible memoirs or participated in oral histories so that mm-hmm. you can uh, speak in their words. And that is the part that I just loved. You you call out how when these oral histories are done, they are often done by observers who have never been in a, a backyard uh, washing area and they've arrived without invitation. And to have the person who was interviewed's perspective so that the uh, the workers speak for themselves is just such a stunning, stunning part of this book as, as, as a reader. Um, okay, so let me ask you a little bit about uh, method and, and how it is that you got these stories. I mean, there are moments in the book where I think, whoa, wait, wait, where is this coming from? And I go to the footnotes. So so tell tell the listeners a little bit about where you found these stories, the family stories, but also the other ones that are really crucial to the narrative. So my family stories, my mother was a storyteller and she would tell me the same stories over and over and over again to the point where I was like, ma, I know that story. And she's like, yeah, anyway. And she would tell it again. And I I think, you know, we had a bit of an age gap. She was an older mother for the time. Now, not an older mother at all, but like in her late 30s. And so I think she wanted me to know the world that she grew up in. And so much had changed in her lifetime. And when she was born, there wasn't a refrigerator in the house. There was an icebox. And so she was like, I need you to understand the sort of structural and, and, and difference in text of what was possible Um, between when I was a child and now that you're growing up. So she really emphasized these family stories, her own experiences, um, the experiences of her grandparents and her parents. And so those were just part of my brain um, and, and how I, you know, think about my family initially. And and those stories are interlayered with different family members telling me the same stories, my grandparents uh, telling those same stories. And so it was a thrill to get to go to the archival record, to go to the census record and piece those bits and and, and tales back together and, and see their truths um, reflected in those archival sources. In addition to that, I'm... You know, I'm an avid oral historian. I've, I've taught oral history for a long time. I, it was one of the first things I did in graduate school was participate in a project called Behind the Veil at Duke University. And so I used the Behind the Veil collection. I've used other oral history collections that I discovered. Um, my graduate students did an amazing sort of treasure trove hunt for different oral histories around the country for me. And so I just had the pleasure of just, you know, listening through them and finding the right ones that fit. And by amazing happenstance, I was able to find people who were connected to my family histories. Um, a, a place called Elbert County was really resonant in um, my ancestors' story of enslavement. And I found an, a washerwoman who was born in Elbert County. Um, and I found a woman from Accomack County, Virginia, who probably migrated within a year of my uh, grandfather. And so those kinds of amazing connections and 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 really the beautiful little things uh, that are happenstance really made such a difference 
um, in, in making those those stories come alive for me. And you know, um, not all of it even felt like happenstance. A lot of it felt like, um, you know, that there, these were things I was supposed to know and needed to know to, to really tell that that grander story that's that's a bit bigger than me. And so it, it I leaned into those moments. No, and I teach in Philadelphia, and I and I think that uh, your family went to Philadelphia. So many families went to Philadelphia. It's so it, it's not surprising to me that actually your story maps on to some of these other stories in such profound ways because I don't I think Philadelphia is under understood as as mm-hmm. so central to the building of not just um, the black working class but black professions, but just black institutions. And so I, I it 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 is you know, you say in the book, um, and I'm, I'm going to get the quote wrong about the the number of people that trace their ancestry to the black working class in the period that you're talking about. So, and I think that sort of uh, supports and makes it so much more understandable that all people uh, who came from this, uh, from this uh, uh, remarkable moment have these sort of ties that it wouldn't be so hard to to see the the combinations. Let me ask you a question about the photos, which are unbelievable. This book is unbelievable. And and again, how you sort of mix up family and archival photos. And I wondered, uh, how did you you look for photos? Did you have strategies? Were you looking for places? Were you looking for occupations? What kind of work did you have to do to find these photographs? So, in addition to the family photos, which were of course much more easy to get um, permission for, huh? <laughs> um, we I worked with some of my graduate students and um, former grad students to call through collections. And so they they built up this huge archive of different photos from around the country for me to, to go through and, and really pick. And so I could try to amplify the professions that I wanted to talk about and then also the sort of poignant moments, um, you know, finding the picture of a, a black woman made on her knees cleaning a, a set of steps was such a powerful one because it was a story I wanted to tell. And then my graduate student uh, found that photograph um, for me and without even knowing that that's what I was talking about in that chapter, um, which was so resonant. And then just some really beautiful um, things that were somewhat public access and somewhere in vanishing Georgia, um, which fit beautifully pictures of places that were within really proximate distance of my family that I wanted to capture. So it, it was, um, I could have had triple the number of photographs in this book because there was just so much to illustrate and to tell. Um, the picture. And a thrilling part. Sorry to interrupt the picture and it's two pictures of that made are my favorites on 184 and 187. The fact that first somebody is above the stairs looking down at her and we see her face, but then Mm -hmm. he is behind her and we see her on her knees. And Mm -hmm. I just keep asking myself, well, who is Jack Delano? How is he taking these pictures? And look what he was trying to capture. He he doesn't just want her face. He wants her taken from behind to show the work that she does, which you talk in detail about this getting down on your knees instead of using the mop that had been invented by a black inventor of of wanting people on their (laughs) knees, um, which is also a very powerful um, moment in the book. 
let's talk a little bit about the term working class. You know, you write mm-hmm. in the book that that the term is often used to highlight this American myth, and it's really associated with thinking about white working class, sometimes just to the male white working class. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, you weren't a scholar of the working class, um, you know, what, you know, but but you had studied movements and movements are often organized by the working class. So uh, talk to me a little bit about how it is that Black Americans have been defined outside of the working class and and defined in ways that are the opposite of what uh, you present in the book, the opposite of stoic and hardworking. Yeah, I, I think that the American mythology of, you know, lifting oneself by the bootstraps and the independence of an American spirit and that you really don't need other people or any kind of um, collectivity to to be impactful. Um, I found the opposite for Black Americans, that they were reliant on remaking kin and community because of the trauma of slavery, uh, that that they come to think of themselves in different kinds of ways. Um, the mythology that they share with themselves about who they are is fundamentally different. And it's not um, valuing um, profit or um, accumulation in a sort of individualistic way, but really the networks of support, of community, of communication over time and space become so important to survival. Um, and for success and for transformation in the 20th century. And so uh, it was it was really a powerful reminder of the things I, I did know from studying movement history that you could see those networks, you could see that connectivity. And, you know, something that I have always been teaching my students um, to really see it amplified over and over again when I honed in on studying these professions was a really powerful reminder. There are some huge themes in the book that run through all of the chapters, um, rule of law, the rule of unions, reparations, how important communication and networking is, um, building collective consciousness, violence, respect. I, it, it's, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much is written in the margins of this copy of the book, <laughs> um, of, of just how unbelievably uh, thought-provoking uh, the book is, and also how much I learned from the book, because I, I actually did not know very much about washerwomen's strikes. And I was sort of surprised at some things that I should know that I didn't know. So thank you. I, I'd like to start with um, this chapter that you wrote, and you uh, title it from something that you took from the census, where this woman, Sarah, lists her occupation as laundress, and her industry as at home, and her employer as working on own account. And you in, you title her chapter Working on Own Account, which I think is really beautiful. Talk to us a little bit about laundry at this time, uh, why it is so associated with Black women, and why it is that they sought it out as something that would empower them. So Laundry work, particularly in the South, but nationally overall, was connected to to Black women and to Black women in slavery. Um, it was arduous work. You had to make soap, boil water, wring things out by hand. You know, before the advent of any of the machinery of the 20th century, even the basic rudimentary machines 
uh, the ringers and and press rolls that they they come up with to get water out of laundry um, that households get in the 1930s and 40s. It's before all that. And so Black women do that work in enslavement and they do that work in freedom because it becomes associated with them as a race and therefore stigmatized. Um, So as they move into freedom, it's amazing to see that uh, washerwomen immediately begin to determine that they will do this work in their own yards, in their own spaces so that they can prioritize their own households and raising their children or grandchildren and that they will do it on their own schedule, that they won't do it faster and accelerate this, but, you know, really take the days that of labor that it really requires. And there's a big fight about it because white employers would like more and faster and they want control and they want Black women to do this work in addition to other kinds of labor within white households and really just become household employees. And so they push back on this immediately Um, You know, I see the organization of women in 1865 into a union in Jackson, Mississippi, which was just bowled me over. Um, Such a reminder that in enslavement, um, Black men and women had a vision about what their labor meant and a sense of their power. And, you know, we talk so much about um, consciousness raising in, in union organizing. This is a reminder that workers have a consciousness have a sense of what difference their labor makes. They need resources, they need support, but they don't necessarily need to be taught about what difference their work makes in the world. They can see for themselves, they can observe for themselves. And so I think that's a really powerful reminder of the the true context of organizing in that moment. So washerwomen are at the hub of this kind of thinking. And then they also use their power, not just to, to support each other, um, to get days off, to get holidays, to set basic minimum wages for themselves. They don't make a lot of money, uh, but they do get to determine the rest of their lives in really key ways that keep them a little bit safer and a little bit more connected to their family than they had been in enslavement. And they also use their power for others. They organize with other labor organizations in coalition with streetcar boycotts, which I studied in my first book. And they, they're just feisty and amazing, independent folks. And, you know, there's a beautiful book um, by Tara Hunter, To Join My Freedom, which I just adore. And I will mention every time I do a media appearance because her work was such a guide to me um, as I was becoming a historian. And um, I thought when I went to this, oh, her example of this Atlanta washerwoman in 1881, that's the thing. That's the amazing thing that happened. I'm going to have a hard time writing something else. But when I went through the record, I learned that Atlanta was the tip of the iceberg, that there were smaller, similar struggles everywhere around washerwomen. And so the the breadth of it was, was astounding. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This chapter is amazing and it, and it has 
you do this with every single chapter. You show us that this labor that people take for granted is highly skilled. And in this chapter, you talk about how laundry is a mix of art and science and physical effort. And so that the physical effort gets a lot of attention, but not the, what do you add to a stain and what temperature is the water and all of these things that you show the, the nuance of the work, which therefore means no, not everybody can do it. And this is part of what they recognize. I also love in this chapter, how you uh, describe their space and how it is that that space helps them with this collective consciousness and understanding of what they do. So when they have a spare minute, they're not being ordered to do something else by mm -hmm. an employer. They're having conversation. They're taking care of their children, but they have space for conversation that is not being surveilled. And surveillance plays such a huge role, especially when you get to the chapter on the Pullman porters because they're being surveilled every second. Yeah. Meanwhile, the washerwomen have some sort of space to discuss labor away from, you call it space making, away from their supervisors and they're making their own timetables. Um, you alluded to safety and I, I just want to press you a little bit on that because that's another theme in this book is mm -hmm. the kind of violence that all workers face in this time period that you're talking about. But there's some that are more particular to women who work in households. And I thought you'd maybe expand on that a little. Absolutely. I, I really wanted to to blend in the consideration of sexual assault that Black women had to, to take as domestic workers. Um, women who worked in household were often uh, considered appropriate targets uh, for the aggressions of white men and, and white women. Um, and, you know, from physical violence to sexual violence, um, they really had no recourse, no ways of protecting themselves. So the choice to be a washerwoman oftentimes paid a little bit less than it would have to, to live in as a domestic in a household. But it provided that space to, for women to be able to stop on a front step and not um, get roped into household dynamics that were more and more dangerous for them. Um, and and the, the, there's an awareness of it and a, a consciousness about um, their desire to stay to stay free from those kinds of attacks is is part of what they they point to in their own labor organizing. And it's even seen by people you might not think would see it. You have this quote from John Ray of the Knights of Labor saying, like, I think these women need to protect themselves from, quote, the avariciousness of some of the brethren and they shall have it if I'm forced to remain here long enough to accomplish it. He's not really the one who accomplishes it. They do. But it's mm -hmm. interesting how many people are aware of this, that this this is a an additional vulnerability for them. Um, another part of this chapter that I absolutely love is that the women don't have the vote <laughs> Mm -hmm. But yet they have political influence through not doing the laundry. And I yes. just thought I couldn't reread that part enough because I thought that was fascinating way of leveraging power. You know? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that the Atlanta strike teaches me that. But then you see that replicated, you know, in places where there are new laws proposed about regulating laundresses, then pulling out of that labor market 
I guess those policies taken off the table um, and, and really reminds the city that, you know, we, there's no alternative. And if we don't consent, um, this is not going to work for you. It's, it's a it's it's a it's really something, um, you know, the, the phrase good help is hard to find kept popping up in my mind as I was doing this work because they, they made themselves hard to find if the circumstances were wrong. No, I love that part. And, and they, and the, the white community has so stigmatized the doing of the laundry that there is no competition, which creates yet another point of exploitation by the workers themselves. They recognize that you don't, you don't have choice and we can get a betterment for our conditions in this way. I also love that there is this contrast between this chapter, which is about private backyards, women talking to each other, and the next chapter, which is about the Pullman Porter. And I think if if you pushed people on Black working class in the early 20th century, you might get them to remember the Pullman Porter because the the face of Pullman was the black worker in the uniform positioned in a particular way with with uh, names that were not their own. So this one is very, very different, very, very public. Um, and, and again, you're using a person, uh, Cornell Lawrence Dellums, to tell the story. And tell us a little bit about how this kind of work, which also had complex networks and community building and communication was so different from the way in which the washerwomen worked. Yes, yeah, so the, the Pullman porters were on display um, when they were at work and on call. Um, the the in, entire idea of their employment was to, to be that manservant. Um, George Mortimer Pullman designed um, the Pullman palace cars, um, sleeping berths during the night that could be transformed into luxurious seating in the day to make um, long distance travel, very comfortable for passengers. And so he invoked this stereotype. He was a, up, from upstate New York, um, but you know, I guess everybody has these stereotypes in their head at that time. And so he thought of black men as the antebellum, generous, wealthy plantation, and that you would have a, a refined black man waiting on you hand and foot. So that was really the image that he used. And, and again, made um, black workers essential to this employment. Um, there were some some Asian, particularly Filipino uh, workers who did so on the West Coast. Um, but for most of the country, it was an overwhelming majority of black men becomes the largest private employer of black men in the United States. So like washerwomen, they end up with this accidental leverage over the labor market. But unlike washerwomen, they don't really have those private spaces, as you said. And so they were tightly surveilled, spied on even as they organized. Um, but they they managed to build a union over um, at least one decade of concentrated effort. But I would argue a longer time period of desiring um, organizing in their work. I liked that part of the book, the way you always go back to show how it is this didn't just come out of that one particular moment. I think it's one of the strengths of your, you know, um, the way you write history. And this chapter does has such little details that are so um, amazing. I want to find a way to use my 
um, your book and my teaching, and I've been trying to think it through of, of what it is st students could get. And one thing here is, you know, you talk about how Pullman, uh, you know, allowed for the porters not to be called by their names, but to either be called George, which was his name, or or boy. And uh, the person that you're following, Cornell Lawrence Dellums, was named after Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the poet. And the, when you cite that moment in the poem, the mask that grins and lies, the kind of things you need to put up with when you are disrespected. And then the fact that the brotherhood of sleeping car porters, the union that's ultimately formed, is service, not servitude as the motto. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. loved the way you brought all of those things um, together and also the way they were using the trains to bring newspapers back and, yeah. and forth, like the washerwomen who are also walking around and using the streetcars. It's just terrific. Um, I wanted to ask you about the federal government because it plays mm -hmm. a kind of a, uh, it's not exactly a villain, but it's a sort of lurking uh, presence that's not always positive. So sometimes the government seems to help, sometimes it doesn't. It tells a little bit about the government that is supposed to be regulating uh, wages and uh, and how it is that they include or do not include the Black working class. So um, the overwhelming working class, when the government finally sort of butts into industry in a massive way in during the New Deal, um, in ways that are super helpful for most workers, they exclude um, domestic workers and they exclude agricultural workers. So you exclude a bulk of Black workers in that moment from hourly protection and, and wage um, minimum wage limits. And um, it's it's a really powerful uh, little streak in, in this memory of, you know, okay, the New Deal made such a difference. It did. And yet um, by not pushing to include um, domestic and, and agricultural work, it was basically creating a racial divide in the protections in the country. The Pullmans also were excluded initially from railway protections because they were connected to the cars and not to the railroads themselves. Um, the, the white union chartered itself as an all-white union and excluded the Black Pullman Porter workers from the very beginning. So they had to build their own separate union, which was, was quite a fight. But eventually, they, in 1937, they're able to do so and be recognized um, federally. Um, and that was such a powerful intervention. So you, you have both you know, the exclusion and the inclusion, but the Pullman Porters use their platform to push for more coverage for Black workers, for more inclusion in industry, um, in defense jobs. Um, they build the March on Washington movement in the 1930s and 40s, which becomes the, the, the group that brings the March on Washington in 1963 that we all know of. And so um, their long tail in terms of um, improving the condition of workers really comes from their own organizing history. Um, a union that was built not just by Pullman Porters, but by Black people in general who were concerned about their their condition and, and participated in making their union possible. No, and I love in the book how it is you show how the federal government and the established unions both along the way are uh, helpful and also discriminatory and hurtful that the the not including domestics in those wages means that the wages are low and that allows white women to go back to the workforce because they have hired 
underpriced, uh, underpaid um, domestic, Black domestic workers. So it's empowering one group of people at the expense of another. And you really show that in a in a nuanced way throughout the book. Um, yeah, that, that was the one that really struck me in the gut. You know, the, the story that we tell of women workers, uh, Rosie the Riveter is going in and supporting the country. Rosie the Riveter had a Black maid um, cooking dinner and tending to her children while she was gone. And we've never told that story on that national level um, in the way that we should. And the other story you tell about that woman going to be Rosie the Riveter is she doesn't even know the name of the person no. who's living in her house. And that is, no. a, that is a gut punch moment in the book in which a woman dies and her employer does not know her name. Mm-hmm. She's been working in her house. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I like the way, you know, earlier in the book, you've talked about the myth of the na- mammy. You've talked about the myth of, 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 of black women wanting to, you know, rock the babies and nurse the babies and yes. here, and that it's, oh, we're all one big family. And then this is sort of shown to be such uh so, so, so the opposite when somebody doesn't even know where to go if somebody dies in their own home. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is the postal workers. And, and this chapter is entitled Everything Sufficient for a Good Life. And it and it is the most uplifting of the uh, chapters, even though it starts out badly that fear after the Haitian Revolution means that in 1825, they take away the ability to be a postal worker from anybody but free white persons. So it doesn't start out well, but the the triumph of the postal workers is incredible and the ways in which that uh, prosperity and dignity, which is an important part of the chapter, uh, changes things. Want to unpack that just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think we take for granted the Black presence in the post office. Um, Black workers in places where there's a decent-sized Black population can often be the majority of postal workers. And so we sort of think of it as um, easy and and we don't slow down that thinking. Um, There's a great historian named Philip Rubio who's done amazing work on the post office. And so I draw on um, some of his scholarship and again, some amazing oral histories and some of the things I knew from my study of movement history to pull together a reminder of the degree to which postal work is, is tied to our citizenship. It's delineated in the constitution. Um, it is the only sort of labor that, that becomes exclusively white by law um, early on and, and that black workers fight to be, be postal workers and that some of them are lynched and killed in the effort. There, some of them are attacked as they deliver the, the myth of the black male rapist inserts itself into postal work that somehow when you go to deliver the mail to a household, you'll be uh, victimizing the white women in that household. Uh, a flip of the, the real sort of people who are victimized in white households um, over and over again, systematically. Um, and so it's just, a, 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 by drawing close to that history, it, told a much different story than I think many of us would assume about um, the Black inclusion and postal work. And that it was a site of struggle well into the the mid 20th century uh, where where Black workers had to fight for their rights to be included, to be able to get through the civil service exam in a fair way and and have the right to jobs. And then they used those um, pathways to really build other pathways for 
Black workers to be included in postal work and then use that to be, to be a launching pad for civil rights. I was reading the postal worker chapter while I was also reading the Supreme Court's recent decision on affirmative action. And I thought they were really important. In fact, I think your book is really important for this particular Supreme Court historical moment because this notion of colorblindness, this notion of equal opportunity, the idea that a civil service exam means that everything is now uh <laughs> quote unquote, neutral, when actually there's a built in loophole in which somebody can choose the person who doesn't have the top score if they want to, you know, allowing for a little bit of, of, of prejudice there from the, um, the, the white supervisors who are, are choosing, and also the extent of the violence, how much work has to be done just to get to equal pay and, um, um, uh, you know, uh, leave and and other kinds of, um, of of worker safety issues. So I think this chapter is very very important to to help us understand just how much happens before. Um, but you do talk about reparations and how maybe it's easier to see what would be due a person who cleared a land as opposed to talking about it in that big way. And reparations is sort of all throughout the book. Anyway, I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more about that and also your hope that the book encourages people in new workplaces that are not uh, Pullman cars or, uh, um, you know, washerwomen's backyards to to organize. Yeah, I, I, I really thought of the reparations question as extremely important to um, reflecting on this moment and, and reflecting on the fact that Black workers have thought about reparations questions in the in the past. You know, you mentioned Callie House early on. Um, she's such an important forebear, I think, um, a washerwoman who organizes um, others to, to think about reparations questions before at the, the turn of the 20th century. And so what's really powerful here is that individual impact. I mean, I think we can think on this massive scale, but we don't think about the individual human costs uh, that all of that had and the individual human impacts that um, having someone's labor um, intergenerationally could really make on a family. And so slowing that question down for me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad mathematician, but so slowing that, those questions down for me is, is a really powerful way to think about it um, and to remember the, the, the real cost. Um, for today's workers, I think it's so important to remember the value and the power of um, Black networks, Black institutions, and a, and a Black ethic. Um, that draws from a, a unique American experience. Um, oftentimes we're talking about this is a country of immigrants and we are erasing um, the experience of Native Americans and the experience of Black Americans when we do that work. And that in having those different histories, there's a different way of, of thinking about self and approaching those questions. That's valuable and helpful, I think, to all workers today as we build and we see, you know, I think this particular moment of striking workers, we really have to build another narrative about um, what solidarity can can get us all and, and how we can rethink what might be fair and just for 
working generations today. Well, Blair, I cannot thank you enough uh, for joining me for this conversation and writing this book. I I loved reading it. I look forward to assigning it, gifting it to other people. And I think what you just said is just so important. We have a narrative that's not true. And this is a, a really great effort at refocusing it and re, re, rethinking this. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to say about the book? I think you did a great job of asking some really great questions. Oh, well, it is such it. a good book. This is a, I, I can't recommend it enough to everyone. Um, I've been talking to Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly, and her book is Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class from Live Right Norton 2023. And I will have links to all of the books that uh, Blair mentioned in the podcast in the show notes. Thanks so much, Blair. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much.